from the Glass Enclosed Studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another smoking hot episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Greenhouses are great for starting plants and growing cold weather crops over the winter, but what can you do with them in the summer? On today's show, we'll reveal how to keep it cool enough for plants to survive, and maybe even allow you to grow things that demand a longer season than your outdoor plants. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens, that's right. Potential guests are busy venting, so we will take that heap and helping. Of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and perplexingly potent ponderations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, because it's all coming up faster than homegrown sweet potatoes in central PA, right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath. Later on in the show, we will tackle a burning question. Get it, kids? Because it's what can you do when a greenhouse gets to be a hot house in the summertime? We'll give you lots of interesting options and ideas. But right now, it's time for your opinionated phone calls at 833-727-9500. 88. Matt, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky, Matt. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I'm doing just well. Just doing, doing just well. And where is Matt doing just well? I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Are you calling from the district itself? Yes, sir. Yep. Mm-hmm. You live in D.C.? Yes, sir. What, yep. what quadrant, as they say there? I'm in uh, southeast right now. I'm right in Capitol Hill. Okay. And, and your home is near there? Yeah. Yep. I, I just bought a house in southeast, but a little bit farther east, by the Benning Road Metro. Oh, okay. Very good. You seem familiar. I, were we emailing back and forth? Because... Um, Go ahead. Yeah, I've been I've been pestering you with some questions. Yep, when I finally got a chance to get on the get on the show, so here I am. Okay, okay, <laughs> but you originally hear me on WTOP in Washington. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm here there, and I'm also actually from Allentown, so I'm really familiar with PBS and everything, and I keep pretty. I've been following you for a little while now. Oh, that's great. Thank you. What can we do for you, Matt? Well, uh, I move into my house next week, and I have a really like a brick raised bread in front of my house. That's about four foot wide by maybe 10 feet long, and I kind of want to just do like a monarch butterfly oasis. And I've narrowed it down to Mexican sunflower and uh, the swamp milkweed. Now, um, I know the Mexican sunflower, I can just toss the seeds into the ground sometime soon in the next week or two, but the swamp milkweed, I'm kind of, uh, I need a chill period. I have it in the fridge as an experiment to see if I can get something to sprout. If not, I'll plant it in the fall. I'm not sure if the two will blend. I don't know if you have any uh, any knowledge on any of these flowers, but I kind of just want to get some butterflies in my front yard. Okay. So you have a raised bed in front of your house that's four feet wide and eight to ten feet long. Yeah. Yep. And uh, how tall is it? Pretty tall. It's probably about, um, so like my, it used to take a couple stairs to get to, up to my house kind of on a hill, so the raised bed is probably about three, four feet tall. Really? And it's filled all the way with soil? Yeah, and it's just grass right there. The, the previous owner just kind of left it with just sod. So you walk up, and it's like a brick wall that goes up. It's all soil in there, maybe about three feet deep. But it's not great soil. It's really old and rough. and Right. And deep. have and you pulled up the sod? Not yet. So, But I'm, I know that the Mexican uh, – these uh, I've researched that these plants are – like rough, tough soil that, I mean, hopefully they'll thrive yeah. in that type of... Yeah, you are. Compost. I, love, I love newbies. Yeah. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to pull up that sod. Now, interestingly enough, this is a good time to lay sod if it's in good shape. Is there another area uh, near the house that uh, you might want to re- move this sod over to? Uh, nope, I was just going to get a compost pile, pull up the sod, and then just try to plant and just get a nice flower bed going. I'm, I'm not really... Okay. So here's really. what you, here's what you do. Um, 
I would get some, you know, maybe some friends over. I would use a linoleum knife or other sharp object to cut the sod into strips that are maybe six inches wide and then get underneath the sod with a, preferably not a shovel, something like a garden fork. And right. see if you can actually keep the sod in the strip form in one piece and roll it out. And then okay. you can give it to somebody who may need to sod an area or just turn it upside down on top of um, preferably a non-dirt area and it will turn into compost. Uh, you don't have to mix it with anything else. You've got carbon in the soil, you've got nitrogen in the grass. Um, turn it, and if you have an area that's weedy, turning sod upside down on it is a great way to kill off all the weeds there. So anyway, you do that strip by strip because sod is heavy. Sod has several inches where the roots go down and you need to get those roots out of there. Right. So then what I'm going to tell you to do is um, lay cardboard, a single strip of cardboard over the dirt that's underneath there. And then you can fill that up. Yes, yeah, swamp milkweed and tithonia, Mexi Mexican sunflower, do not need especially good soil. So you can go to, um, there are some garden centers in the D.C. area. I would get uh, topsoil. I would have at least one-third compost in there. Um, maybe some perlite if you want, but compost and topsoil mixed. And then fill that up. And it is nice that you wish to grow swamp milkweed from seed your first year, but you're a maniac. So... <laughs> When I'm at that garden center, I would buy some pre-started milkweed plants. Why did you choose the swamp variety as opposed to the other milkweeds? Because it came in the color white, and I wanted to do the white with the red. I thought that would look pretty good. I don't know, just visual appeal. What's the red? Like a, isn't the torch sunflower like a reddish orange? or? It's yellow. It is? I thought the Mexican sunflower was red. No, not, not mine, Art. <laughs> <laughs> There may there may be a red variety, but I ain't never seen it. I'll have to double check. I have to double yeah. check then. Yeah, hopefully I'm. So right anyway, path. because you're in D.C., your soil is nice and warm. You're not going to get many more cold nights, if any. When I go to the garden center, I would buy the milkweed pre-started. Now, monarchs are so appealing to people. You may have a butterfly society near you. You know, local garden group. And that grows um, milkweed uh, for fundraising or to give out to people in the spring. I would really urge you uh, to do a little looking around online. You actually do have an extension agent for the area of D.C. And you can talk to her if it's still the woman I remember from a couple of years ago. And she'll know where you can get some good milkweed. But you don't even have to go to a garden center. Uh, different garden clubs will be selling milkweed. And you might want to check the Monarch Watch page. That's a group okay. of Monarch enthusiasts who, when they get good at it, they even tag the butterflies so they can be identified when they reach their overwintering home in the tropics. Interesting. So Interesting. I, I would get as many different types of milkweed as you can, and I would plant one or two of each of them to see which ones do the best in your situation. And then if you, Tithonia is a beautiful plant. It does look like a classic sunflower. It is not in the sunflower family, but it sure looks like one. And the milkweed is what the caterpillars feed off of. That's called the host plant. Mm -hmm. So having milkweed in your garden means that cater the um, adults will lay their eggs on the milkweed and eventually really cool looking caterpillars will devour the milkweed. Oddly enough, you know you're a success if your milkweed is eaten to the ground because that, okay. that means you fed a lot of monarch caterpillars. But at the end of the season, this is the part that people often miss out on, the adult caterpillars, they have to fly down to freaking Mexico, right? Uh, and uh -huh. they need a lot of food. Tithonia is very pollen and nectar rich. It's the kind of color that attracts them. 
so whereby with swamp milkweed, you may see adults laying their eggs on it. But if you have tithonia in bloom at the end of the summer, there's no reason you won't see monarchs every day feeding on those plants before they make the journey down to Mexico. Um, yes, you can put the seeds in the soil now, keep them watered, and they'll grow. Um, I started my tithonia seeds back in March. So, uh, the, well, it's, it's okay. It's okay. If you can't find the plants for sale, then yes, put the seeds in the soil, and your tithonia will be in bloom at the end of the season. Um, the advantage to starting the seeds indoors early or buying plants is you'll get another six weeks of those beautiful flowers. Uh, tithonia reblooms like mad. Every time a flower head starts to, you know, fall apart and dry off, get out there with pruners and take it off, and it'll be replaced by two more. So, tithonia will bloom until frost, especially if you deadhead it. Take off the, the faded flowers. You'll just keep getting new ones like mad. Great. I'm excited. I, I mean, I already had some seed, seed started of other things, so I'm kind of you know, bummed I didn't start them a little bit earlier, but I'm definitely going to give it a whirl and put them out there. Okay. And again, if you see it for sale in a garden center, for good luck, buy one or two, and then those will bloom early, and then yours will come up. Okay. I'm going to keep my eye out. I'm, I'm, I'm there almost every weekend on my days off. So Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. All right. And this All is right. the beginning, so I'll be giving you another call. Whole yeah, I hear you. All right, Matt. Too. Good luck. All right. Thank you. All right, the number to call, 833-727-9588. Ashley, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Ashley. How are you? Oh, my gosh. So excited to be here. <laughs> and where is Ashley excited? I'm in Seattle right now for work, but my garden is at home in North Bend, Washington, which is about 40 minutes drive east, uh, right at the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. Oh, that is just astoundingly beautiful country out there. Even in, in the city itself, the views are spectacular. Oh, yes, totally. So, but you have a, a somewhat difficult climate uh, for growing hot weather crops. Uh, I don't know if that's what this is about, but what can we do you for? Uh, maybe that is what that's about. Um, I'm having some trouble with tomato tough love. Yeah. So um, I just got these tomato plants from an organic garden fair about three weeks ago. Good. And so far they've been uh, growing pretty consistently. I put them in the ground the next day, mm -hmm. and I, but they've been putting on a lot of flowers. And I heard from a, a different gardening podcast, actually, that I should pinch them off when they're really small. But this is just giving me a lot of heartache. I, I wonder if it's really useful to pull the flowers off or if I can just save myself some, some pain and leave them on and enjoy them beautiful and get plenty of tomatoes. The book, the book says to pinch. I've been growing tomatoes for close to 40 years now. I have never pinched off a nice flower. Same thing on my pepper plants and certainly not on my squash plants because those flowers are edible. Even if you can yeah. see it's a male flower, sometimes in some seasons you'll get a lot of flowers but not a lot of fruit. And you stuff those things with cottage cheese or like um, one of those real cool soft cheeses with herbs and stuff in it. Oh my God, they are fabulous to eat, the squash blossoms. The advice, you know, is geared towards challenging the plant to produce even more flowers. I have had seasons where in my garden, it's been just ridiculously wet in the beginning, and then finally a little drier towards the end of the year. And I found with tomato plants that that would pretty much cancel out about half of the varieties I had out there. But <laughs> half of the varieties, uh, the other half of the varieties would do well in cool and cloudy and rainy uh, climates. Uh, the Russian tomatoes, for instance, tomatoes like black crim, which specifically- mm, I have one of those. You do? Oh, they're mm -hmm. great. Um, they should be big tomatoes. They don't harvest them when they're red. Let them continue to ripen off. They will take on a purple color. Then mm. when you bring them inside, that purple is all throughout the fruit, and they have a naturally smoky flavor. I don't know if you guys can see it, but I brought in tomato plants to pass out to the crew after we're done this show. Black crim is among them. It is, I grow it every year. It's one of my favorites. So conversely, uh, you know, the ones that, 
you know, the ones that didn't do well are the ones that would have done well if we had had the reverse, if we had warm weather and dry weather in the beginning and then wet weather at the end. What I'm getting at is if you pull off your flowers now, you're rolling the dice that the weather will not turn really lousy like six or eight weeks from now when you'd be picking those tomatoes. Oh, and you know, in the Seattle area, the weather is completely random. Like it was literally, it was 79 degrees and sunny and beautiful when I went to bed last night or right before I went to bed. And then this morning I woke up and it's 50 degrees and raining really hard. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. That's a chat. That's where you can be really proud of your tomatoes, Ash, because you survived. (laughs) So the answer, I I would not do it. I have never done it because you're tempting Ah. fate. You're tempting fate to be nice to those tomatoes, but not be mean to your later tomatoes. So, and I, I think in my experience, the plants set all the fruit that they're designed to, to set. The uh, determinant plants, the smaller ones, the well-behaved ones, they're gonna set all their fruits pretty much exactly on the days to maturity it's set on the label or on the seed packet, which is starts at the time you put them in the ground. And then the heirloom tomatoes, they're going to take a long time in your climate. You're not going to get your first really uh, ripe black crims until the end of the season, but they're worth waiting for. They're like the headliner in a rock and roll concert. You know, you'll sit through tasteless tomatoes to get to the who when they come into uh, come into their ripeness. Yeah, those things are going to be 80, 90 days. So you don't want to push that back anytime or you're going to start to get into your fall. Very good point. Okay. And it's extra work, like, quote, pruning your tomatoes. It's extra work. And any time you go out to the garden to do extra work, it's time to get a new hobby. It's time to get another hobby. Because basically, yeah, they're plants. They know what to do. You don't know what to do. Books don't know what to do. The plants know what to do. So if they're flowering and they're happy, leave them big. Okay. Okay. All right, Ash? Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Good luck this season. Well, it's time for me to take a quick break and announce that I will appear once again at one of my favorite annual events, the Burlington County Earth Fair at historic Smithville Park in East Ampton, New Jersey. This year's event will be held on Sunday, June 9th. And as always, it's a full day of family-friendly events, music, food, and me. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be back with hot times in the greenhouse and more of your heated phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of your life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of PBS 39 WLVT in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we'll talk about what to do when it gets too hot for a greenhouse to be anything other than a hot house. But mostly we're taking your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Amy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being had, Amy. Where are you? I'm in Fountain Hill, Pennsylvania. Okay, very good. Fountain Hill, Fountain Hill, just outside of Bethlehem? Yes, it's part of the Bethlehem Area School District, but it's its own independent municipality, and we're very proud of it. And the streets are as steep as they are in San Francisco and Seattle. Very good for the calves. (laughs) Yeah, I, I look at some of these streets where... The house at the start of the block is like at a different sea level than the house at the top of the block. And I went, who decided this was a good place to build? You know. Oh, we like goats. I don't know what to tell you. Really? What can we do for Amy and beautiful Fountain Hill? Well, what you can do for me is tell me what I can do for wet, soggy soil. I have recently gotten a property that has some ponds on it, which are beautiful, and they're fed from the spring. 
Oh, um, yeah. But there's wet areas around them and on other parts of my lawn and property, so I really want to know what kind of ornamental, flowering, something nice plants I can put around there to help kind of dry it out a little bit or would at least survive in that kind of dampness. I'm a city kid, so I'm a little lost. So you have, you, you somehow you managed to buy a house on a wetland in a row home neighborhood. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> You're really talented. Okay. I'm a realtor. Now, <laughs> now, when you say that there are ponds, these are actual ponds that you believe have liners in them and they're designed? They are. And, and the area in between the ponds is, is soggy and doesn't dry out. Yes, and there's also some areas that don't have ponds, like to the left of my garage, that are are wetter. There's flat areas, so it's about an acre of land. There's mm-hmm. a nice flat area towards the back right that is fairly dry, and I think that's because there's some very large willow trees on the edge of my property over there that helps dry it out. Um, but when you go further down, the topography of that land, there is um, several large ponds. And in between them, it's a, it's a bit soggy. So I want to know what's good to plant there because I don't know. I've, I've only ever had you, tiny house. How many ponds you got, girl? Three. <laughs> One for each of my girls. It's lovely. Okay. That's, that's wild, child. Um, well, there are several options here. One, of course, is that you simply embrace the ponds and do a little bit of research there are some amazing plants that grow in the water, including flowering plants. Um, and then there are great plants that you can grow on the margins of the pond that include the local uh, carnivorous plants, like pitcher plants. And oh. they, will, they will eat the insects that will be attracted by the water. You know, I should do um, take this side street here and say that for the summertime coming up, you want to arm yourself with BT, the original Bacillus thuringiensis. You can get this at any hardware store, home center. It's the donut-shaped dunks that come on a package that has a big mosquito on it. Okay. It's a, it's a naturally occurring soil organism. You throw one dunk into each of your ponds once a month, and birds will still drink the water, frogs and toads will breed in the water, lightning bugs will breed in the water, but mosquitoes will not be able to breed in the water. Ooh, that's a good idea. So that's, that's critically important. Now, as to the wet areas in between the ponds, I mean, you know, I believe you can go to your township office and somewhere there are hydrology records for your land. Sure. So, for instance, we learned that we are on top, essentially, of an underground river, and we know the path of that river at my house. Um, It sounds like you are on top of maybe the same situation, but where some springs are coming up because of that. Yes. Our well was artesian when we moved in. To relieve that pressure, we ran some of the excess water down into a stream, and that left us with tons of well water but dried out the backyard. So hydrology records, and I don't think I've ever you know, talked about this before, they could be really valuable to you. And then you would hire a landscaper to put in what are called drain tiles. And this would redirect the watery areas in between the ponds to some other low-lying area on your property ideally get it back into the groundwater itself. It sounds cool. like it sounds like you're too far gone for core aeration for something like a lawn that simply doesn't drain properly. In the fall, you would have somebody come in with a big machine that would pull plugs out of the soil and reduce the compaction. Um, but I think your instincts are correct. I think you're on top of some springs. Now, what I also, so, you know, you... Um, you landscape the ponds. Um, there are, again, beautiful flowering plants that um, can live on the margins and in the center. And don't forget, you're going to have frogs and toads. You're going to have beautiful. Yes, we do. You're going to have beautiful birds coming in. You're, you're very diverse out there. And you know, I, I wouldn't even 
stop for a second to get a good book on water gardening, which would show you a lot of your options. And I don't know where the local, where the nearest one is in, um, in our area, in the Lehigh Valley, but there are um, garden centers that specialize in water gardening, that that's pretty much all they do. And you would obviously, that'd be worth your while. I know there's a fabulous one in Annapolis, um, but I'm sure there's closer ones and, and you'd have a good time there. Um, and you do want to drain the rest of the backyard. So, but again, to, to be able to go to a landscaper with a hydrology report and say, this is where the springs are, then you, yeah. could, you could really go to town. Now, your wildest option, which is what I did, um, is to tap into those springs and make your own spring water. Oh. You can tap into the heart of one of those springs, pipe it into the basement of your house. You have a basement? We don't have a basement. We have uh, a raised ranch and the whole uh -huh. first yeah. entry level. And you know why you don't have a basement? Because it would be a swimming pool. Yeah, your instincts are correct. <laughs> you're, you're like a little localized wetland. So one thing you can do is now it's a little more difficult because now you're dealing with heights and everything. But if you could get piping into the center of that spring, pipe it into the house, run it through a UV light, you would have your own spring water, which might oh, well wow. test amazingly well. Um, That's a wonderful idea. So your, 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 <clears throat> your homework is to read up on water gardens. A water iris, for instance, is, looks just like okay. the iris on dry land, but it blooms in water absolutely sensational. There's plants that look like lilies that bloom in the water. And again, all these wonderful marginal plants. Did you say you had children? I do. How old are they? 13, 10, and 8. Okay, so what a great thing to have carnivorous plants in your backyard. They'll never come inside. They'll be watching pitcher plants eat flies all morning long. Oh my gosh, that'd be so fun. Um, you also want to investigate rain gardens. It's possible that your property could be regraded to divert most of the side water, not the pond water, uh, but the mm -hmm. water that's becoming an annoyance to a lower level. And um, I don't know if you saw our show a couple of weeks ago where we had people on showing the kind of bulk soils you could buy for your garden. Okay. One of those bulk soils was a rain garden soil um, that would be at the center of the rain garden that would drain incredibly well. So again, you would grade your property so all of this wetland led down to a rain garden which would have different plants in it, um, but having a special soil in the center that would help it drain into the subsoil. So water gardens, rain gardens, uh, hydrology report, and drain tiles. Wow. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so, so much. All right. Good luck. It's, it's, it sounds like a remarkable property, Amy. I'm, I mean, I'm sending my astral self to Fountain Hill, and I can't even imagine. Oh, you should. Anytime. It is beautiful. All right. All right. I'm well, so good like, luck to you. Thank you. Have a wonderful show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The number to call, 833-727-9588. Ruth, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ruth. How are you? I'm good. And where is Ruth good? Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. That's a beautiful area down there. All right. What can we do for Ruth in Charlotte? Well, I like to cut my irises and bring them in, but I don't always get a good show. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had a wonderful show last year, and I'm not sure when to water them because they stay green all year round. Right. I have drip irrigation on them, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure how long to water them. Um, and when you say drip irrigation, you've got the hoses that either sweat or have little pinholes in them. Yeah, they have little pinholes. I buy the, the piping at one of those big box stores and then stick the little heads in there. Okay. The um, ones I have Now, wait a minute. Like, wait a minute. You... You, you might be telling me two different things. Are they hoses with holes in them or are they pop-up things? No, they are not pop-up things. Okay. So, okay. So, um, and your irises aren't blooming uh, good this year? Is that what you're saying? They did okay this year. They did really well last year. So I'm figuring it's a watering issue. Well, last year, like 
pretty much everybody else in, in the whole East Coast, you got too much rain, right? Yeah, but the irises were beautiful. Okay, and haven't you so far this year also gotten a heck of a lot of rain? Yes. So I don't think that's the issue. Um, now, you know, uh, I'm sh how many irises do you grow? Uh, they were some bulbs that my mother had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she bought them at a burpee. You know, there's some of them are what they call the re-bloomers. Okay, okay. Now, I'm, I'm sure if you're uh, an established iris gardener, you know the secret that you get the best blooms from the bulbs that are the least buried in the soil. Right. Um, right. You never want to bury more than half the bulb. The smart money only buries the bottom quarter of the bulb and I once got a beautiful iris bloom on a bulb that I had forgotten when I was planting the other ones I just didn't see this one laying on the ground and it sent out one tiny little root shoot into the ground and it bloomed like crazy okay well they're in a bed with wire around them to keep the dogs out of it okay I didn't blow leaves off very well in there. Okay. Well, you have to do that. Okay. I mean, you're, so sm just... you're smothering them. Okay. All right. Now, you said uh, the, the bed is covered with chicken wire to keep dogs out. Um, can't you go down to one end to the other and, and use your blower to get the leaves out of there? Yeah, I can just open it at one end, blow okay. the leaves out, and put it back again. Yeah, get the, get the leaves out of there. And while you're in there, check them. With all the rain we have been getting, they may have settled a little bit deeper into the soil. So I might raise them up a little bit by taking a trowel and gently, you know, moving the soil away from their sides until they're, until they're less buried. Okay. And do you, um, do you feed them compost or anything? I haven't fed them anything because I, you had said, a lot of times I heard you say put an inch or two of compost on top, and I didn't think I would, should do that with that. Yeah, because these, cause are, like these are the top. exception. There's always an exception to a rule, and this is true. You want, the, you want the bulb to be as exposed as possible. So I'll tell you what. I'll meet you in the middle. Get the, um, get the old fall leaves out of there. They could be doing a lot of mischief. Um, use a garden trowel to move some soil away from the sides of the bulbs if they've gotten buried a little bit deeper and then get a nice organic liquid fertilizer and the next time you water them, um, water them with that instead of using your drip irrigation. And as to how long to run the drip irrigation, uh, first of all you need a rain gauge and if you get an inch of rain you don't want to run the irrigation at all. But in, yeah, we got two inches in the last three days. Right, exactly. So, uh, and obviously the soil is not even processing rain real well this early in the season. So you don't want to water for a while. But if, when we get to the summer, if we go a week without rain, I would water them once a week by turning that drip irrigation on for about three hours in the morning once a week. Okay, okay. All right. I can do that. Can I ask you one other question about my daffodils? Daffodils. Okay, what yeah. about them? Okay. I leave the green part on there after they bloom, but eventually it dies back. Right. Uh, should I put compost on top of that, or should I cut off the dead parts once they're brown and then? The second. Yeah, there's no, once, the, once the leaves are no longer green, they're not absorbing solar energy, and it's perfectly safe to clip them off with a pair of scissors. And actually, the time to give them compost uh, ideally is when the leaves are still bright green because that's, that's when they're forming the following year's flower, and that's when they want to be fed. So I would just put it under the leaves, quite honestly, um, a okay. little bit or make compost tea or something. But the time to feed them is now. Once the uh, browned off leaves are clipped off, they're going to go dormant, and they can't really absorb the food then. Okay. But is it okay to just leave the brown stuff there? If you like, yeah. Most people want to get rid of it because it looks bad. Well, they're out in the edge of the yard. I don't really see it. Okay. That's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. Okay. All right. All right. Good luck, Ruth. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will return to the city of brotherly love, cheese steaks and soft pretzels on Tuesday, July 16th to host an evening of horticultural quizza at the PHS pop-up garden on South Street. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with hot times in the greenhouse and more of your hot phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. From PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA, I'm your host, Mike McGrath. And yes, we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll be getting to the question of the week. What can you do in the summertime when your greenhouse turns into a hothouse? But before we get to that, we're taking lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Amanda, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, how are you? I am just ducky today, Amanda. Thank you. I'm in Lansdowne, not Lansdale, Lansdowne by Drexel Hill. Oh, okay. Just outside of Philadelphia. Yep. All right. What can we do for Amanda? All right. So last year, I'm a new gardener. I'll start with that. And uh, last year, I tried my hand at vermicomposting, and it ended pretty disastrously. So I'm trying it again, and I have my worms. I have my little green unit, and then I have the coconut stuff. But I'm not sure what I need to do, really, to keep these worms alive and what do i do with the stuff they produce um first of all welcome to the club we always like to have new gardeners getting involved i have to admit i i've been keeping my worms in, in exactly probably what you have the worm tower the worm condo um for a good 15 years now and i should have been doing it 15 years before that i still don't understand how people it, using a single rubbermaid bin can ever separate out the new stuff from the old stuff so hmm. i think your system is good. Now, when I got my worm bin, it had this huge list of stuff that you're supposed to put in with the with your kitchen garbage yeah. and, you know, peat moss or core or and and then, you know, there were all these other random things. I had some of it around, but I didn't have most of those things around. So I started out using what was recommended, and my results were only okay. And then I decided I was overdoing it and that the worms should know what to do. So literally for the past 10 years, the only thing I do, now you, you know you add your new tray at the top. Yeah, I didn't really know that. Oh, okay. You always add the new material on top because the worms okay. are naturally adapted to moving up. So they'll, oh, work okay. the, they'll work the bottom tray until it. you really can't tell any of the raw ingredients anymore. You can't tell what was a banana peel or what was coffee grounds. It is all this beautiful wet worm casting material. So when they're completely done, there's really nothing left for them to eat. So they move up into the next tray and they work there. So if you get the timing down and your kitchen waste is just the right amount, you should be able to harvest a finished tray on the bottom at the same time as you put a new tray on the top. If you got a lot of garbage, then it'll be the same tray. You'll take out the bottom tray and you'll use that in the garden, and I'll tell you what I do in a little bit. Um, and then you'll bring that back in, fill it up with new stuff, and put it on the top. Now, you can't just use garbage alone. The worms do need what's called bedding. And I experimented with lots of different beddings. I thought I was really smart. I was giving them my shredded leaves. They didn't like that at all. And all the um, veins of the leaf and the stem of the leaf were left behind. So what I have adapted to is it's a layer of garbage, and then about three, four inches of shredded black and white newsprint, and I water it down, and you have a, a spigot at the bottom, right? Right. So what I would typically do is I would turn on that spigot and catch it in a little bucket, and then that's what I would use to water the dry newspaper. Now, after you've done that, you're also supposed to, like, tear off sheets of newspaper and put a couple sheets down on top. I've completely gotten away from that. It's just the garbage and the newsprint, new material at the top. And okay. it works like a charm. Um, if you start to get fruit flies or anything like that, which, which is always going to happen eventually, they're ubiquitous in the environment. They, come, they fly in with you. 
when you come in uh -huh. from the outside. You just get the BTI granules that I'm always talking about for mosquito prevention and shake yep. a few of them into each new tray. The fruit flies, well, actually, BTI is, uh, is EPA registered for use on fruit flies because they breed in that same kind of wet environment. So it works oh, great. When your tray is finished, you have two choices. You can either take it out to the garden, and what I would do this time of year is I would get like a big spoon or something, and I would scoop some around the base of every tomato plant, every pepper plant, everything you want to feed. Now, the crisis is there's going to be still worms in there. And I, I can tell you for the first two or three years, I felt like a rescue home with 100 Great Danes because I would take hours to like save every worm, you know, put them okay. back into the bin until I realized there were hundreds of worms in every level of this thing. And it's, it's, all, it's all worms and microorganisms for themselves in my landscape. They go out into the garden. In the off season, when I'm not growing anything, I add those worm castings to my compost, uh, to my composting material outside. And as long as it doesn't drop below freezing, those worms will actually survive and they'll get down into the compost and they'll start moving it around, but they will okay. improve the quality of the compost. Now, if you want to use the worm tea, the liquid that comes out the spigot in the bottom, what I recommend is you drain off like a quart of that. Like take a plastic quart container you got from a Chinese restaurant that had a quart mm -hmm. of hot and sour soup in it. Mm -hmm. And then pour that into a watering can, fill the watering can with water, and then pour that dilute solution around the base of your plants. All right. So do worms reproduce? or so Oh, they reproduce them, like worms. Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, they breed like crazy. All right. So the 500 I got will make many families. I had um, a really severe outbreak. I was really distracted by something that was happening, and I couldn't tend my worm bin properly, and it got really infested. Um, and I decided it was, it was just the perfect time of year that I could take it outside clean it all off, um, just dump everything that was in it into the garden and start fresh. So what I did, literally, I'm working with one of those quart containers. Mm -hmm. I, I went through the most finished level and I saved maybe 100 worms, you know, maybe less, maybe more. But I put them into this quart container, punched holes in the lid, just like when we used to catch lightning bugs, and yeah. then cleaned everything off and put up like fly paper and use BTI to kill off any that were in the area, any fruit flies. And then um, I started a new level with garbage and newspaper and I put the worms into that. And I think I probably have 5,000 worms now. Uh, there's not wow. a single level that doesn't have hundreds of worms in it, even the finished ones. So okay. yeah, you don't have to worry about them. If they're not breeding, something is going terribly wrong. But uh, well, they, they do like to breed. Uh, one okay. other thing is they have to be protected from extreme cold and extreme heat. So okay. you can't keep the bin outside much of the year. It's better to keep it on a porch or in your garage or something like that. All right. Yeah, we've got a good spot for it. Um, one final question. Sure. So you said each, if we get the timing down, and I know there's probably a lot of variables about what that timing is, depending on how much, you know, waste we produce. Mm -hmm. But, like, average, would you – I think my, my fear is that I'm going to put too much in there or put too little and not know when they, you know, move and when the, the lower level is ready. Um, well, I, in my house, the lower level is ready when we got enough garbage to fill up the top level. Okay. And, you know, this is – gardening it's not cook it's not baking you don't have to get the exact right temperature for the right time and not have anybody open the door or talk loudly you got and i apologize for saying this at this topic but you know i'm an old comedian you got a lot of wiggle room here with your worms so <laughs> just you know work it out and if you have outdoor compost bins that have locking lids mm -hmm. like the recycled black plastic ones yeah. If you yeah. have too much garbage at one point in the season, mix some of that in there, as long as there's lots of dry browns, like shredded leaves in there. But right. uh, you'll catch the rhythm now, especially All if right. you weren't putting the new, uh, the new bin on top, the new tray on top. Once you start doing that, the rhythm will work itself out. No, that makes a lot of sense. I was doing it the exact 
opposite way, which is why I suppose I had a big old graveyard last year. Right, right, right. Well, you did the right thing. I mean, you asked. And um, if none of your worms have survived your evil experiment, uh, do you know anybody else who has a worm bin? Because, you know, if you live down the block, you, you could have hundreds of worms from me. Well, <laughs> I think now I'm going to have to get some more people involved in this. Oh, yeah. It's, a, a, it's, 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 uh, a little scary. I don't know why. It but, is you the know, absolute it's, it's just... best use for your kitchen waste. Um, okay. It's it's really the only way that you can recycle your kitchen waste up into a, a, an astonishingly beneficial material. You're not just diverting it from landfills. You're taking its organic matter and you're improving it and you're using it to improve your soil. There's absolutely nothing better you can do with kitchen waste. All right. Well, this is exciting. I'm, I'm really excited now. Yeah, you go get them. <laughs> I will. All right, Amanda. Good luck. As promised, it is time for the question of the week. This week, what can you do with a greenhouse in the summertime? Anne in central Pennsylvania, near Altoona, writes, We love the show and listen every week. I got a smallish greenhouse this past August to add to the raised beds that we have outside. It is a cold house, meaning we don't do anything to heat it, only what it gets from the sun. I planted spinach, arugula, and lettuce in the greenhouse in August, planted more runs in January, and have been cutting greens out there continually since September. It's been great. From now on, however, we'll be working primarily in the outside garden. Any advice about what I could possibly grow in the greenhouse over the summer? I was thinking about heirloom tomatoes and maybe eggplants or peppers. Or do you think it's going to get too hot in there? Well, you have already discovered the perfect use for a greenhouse, Anne, which is growing cool weather crops like salad greens over the winter. As the weather improves, they can also be a good place for transplants that were sprouted indoors as long as the greenhouse is decently insulated and it doesn't get too cold at night. Then, as you note, they can quickly go from being greenhouses to hothouses in the summer, even in your relatively cool climb. First question, is the greenhouse vented? Can you roll up the sides along the bottom as with a large-scale hoop house? Is there a vent in the ceiling that works automatically or that can be engaged by you manually? And finally, there has to be a door so that you can get in and out, right? So even if you don't have the preferred automatic heat vent in the ceiling or the ability to roll up the sides, you can always vent this puppy just by propping the door open. If you do vent it, keep those greens inside for a while. I presume they're up on a bench where they're much easier to reach than bending over to harvest from a raised bed. It's not a good place for tomatoes over the summer, but I would keep my pepper plants inside the greenhouse in pots, again, vented on a hot, sunny day, but closed up and protected when we get to chilly nights or perhaps even more importantly, protected from the kind of pounding rains that we endured last season and we're getting this season again already. Keep moving those pepper plants up into larger pots and put a thermometer in there. If it gets above 95 degrees despite venting, rig a fan up to move the air around inside, ideally from the back of the greenhouse towards the propped open front door. In my experience, peppers, especially hot peppers, can handle somewhat excessive heat better than almost any other plant. Just keep them well watered as they won't be getting the benefit of any rain. If you're on city water, try to collect rainwater in a barrel or bucket for your greenhouse plants. Now, when the days start to get noticeably shorter, start more runs of salad greens and stuff and keep an eye on that thermometer. Once the nighttime temps inside the greenhouse start to drop down to around 50, you'll need to either take the pepper plants inside your house or provide heat inside the greenhouse. This is well worth the effort. Peppers are perennial if protected from frost, and if you handle them correctly, a single plant can live in fruit for decades. That's why I'm suggesting you grow them in pots so that they'll be easy to move around. They'll have to come inside the house and be under lights for the dead of winter, but with a little work, you should be able to stretch their time in the greenhouse considerably. The easiest way would be with heating mats. Studies performed with snapdragons in greenhouses found that the temperature around the root zone of the plants is much more important than the air temperature. So if you can run an extension cord out there, a good high-quality heating mat, which you may already have for your indoor seed starting, might get your plants through the holidays. 
If you do go this way, be sure to securely weather strip any openings and repair any tiny tears to keep the heat inside. Other ideas. You know, your season is too short to grow sweet potatoes or large watermelons outdoors. But if you have the space and ingenuity, you might be able to do it in a greenhouse. Both crops love heat, and an occasional midsummer venting should be all they need. Or how about this? Buy a whole bunch of spring bulbs, pot them up in good-sized containers, water them once, and then chill them in the greenhouse over the winter. After 12 weeks of chilling, daffodils can be brought right out into the bright light to bloom. 16 weeks for most tulip varieties. Now you're a bulb forcer. And finally, there's always the option of closing it up tight for the summer to kill any nasties like white flies and aphids. With no venting, the inside of the greenhouse will heat up enough on a sunny day to cook any bad bugs. You can even disinfect suspicious soil passively. Well, those sure were some interesting options about summer in the greenhouse, now wasn't they? Luckily for those of you who wish to read it over in detail, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to garnish my greenhouse. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location, oh please, please, please. You'll find all of that contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast, all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show and an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by WLVT. PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick is wearing a tiara today. Our website wonder is Anastasia Wickerly. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Judicious Jake Boyer. Our overheated floor manager is John DeSantis. Cute as a cucumber is our harassed and harried director, Javier Diaz. Our long neglected cameraman and previously uncredited is Jeff Frederick. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief techno officer is Andy Cummins. Zach the Tackwizneski is in the house. Our CEO Tim Fallon is not our executive producer, is late for a meeting, and wants some of them sweet potatoes. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I grow sunflowers in my greenhouse. I need to go tend the tomatoes so I can see you again next week.